0: Today's scripture reading is from Luke 17, verses 20 through 37. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look here it is, or there For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and the lights up, the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in bed. One will be taken away and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken And the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. The Gospel of the Lord.
1: Are we there yet? Every parent loves fielding that question on a long road trip with their children, and it is a strange question, is it not? Are we there yet? You can adjust your gaze, you know, 20 degrees to the right, look out the closest window and see that we are still barreling down I-70 somewhere between Columbus and Zanesville, Ohio, hurtling down the asphalt at somewhere between 65 to 80 miles per hour, depending on which parent is driving. But yes, yes, we're here. Hop on out. This is where Grandma and Grandpa live now. None of us can really complain, though, because we all asked the same question when we were kids, didn't we? I I didn't ask it on an eight-hour interstate trip. I remember once asking it on a 15-minute ride uh, back from the grocery store. Are we there yet? And Mom said, yes, this is our backyard now. Isn't it nice how Dad paved this for us? You see where I get it. Uh, We've all been that kid and even as adults, we just don't like to wait. If we know something is going to happen, even something as simple as getting home from a trip to the grocery store, we want it to just be here now. Even unpleasant things are hard to wait for. You know, you're not excited about that root canal, but if you've been in the waiting room for a half an hour, you're thinking, can somebody please just come and drill my teeth? Waiting is hard to do, but waiting is part of the Christian life. Waiting is a key theme we've seen in this section of Luke that we've been in for some time now called the Journey to Jerusalem section. I think, if I remember right, starts around chapter 9, verse 51. Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. Um, One of the themes is the future, the coming of Christ, and instruction for his uh, disciples as they wait. Uh, For example, we saw in chapter 12, I believe, twin parables of servants who must remain ready and watchful for their master's return. Keep your lamps trimmed and burning, for the time is drawing nigh. Well, in today's text, as you just heard, Jesus teaches on that same theme, the coming kingdom, the coming of the Son of Man. Everyone was looking for God's kingdom to arrive. We've talked about the kingdom of God a little bit before. There are various ways of defining it. Uh, it's essentially God's saving rule, uh, where God defeats his enemies, establishes his people, uh, God's people under God's place, or in God's place under God's rule and blessing is one common way of defining it. Uh, I believe it comes from a guy named Graham Goldsworthy. Uh, but that's a good thing to be looking for, the saving rule of God. And both Pharisees and Jesus' disciples were looking for it, as we heard. Uh, the Pharisees look for it wrongly. But the disciples will long for it strongly, if you like uh, putting things in cute ways. Uh, Jesus has some things to say to both groups, so we'll obviously dig in and look at the Pharisees first. Uh, in verse 20, the Pharisees ask, ask Jesus when the kingdom of God will come. Maybe this is one of their trap questions, or maybe it's a genuine question they want Jesus take on. It's hard to say. Either way, it's clear from Jesus' response that these Pharisees, he knew... We're looking for the kingdom in all the wrong places. Jesus responds, The kingdom is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. That phrase that's translated, Ways that can be observed, in verse 20. Uh, translates really one Greek word that has to do with cosmic or apocalyptic signs, most likely is what they were looking for. Some, some big symbolic events that can be interpreted to indicate the timing of the kingdom's full arrival. Uh, in Luke 11, you may remember from however long ago it was that we were in Luke 11, Jesus condemned the whole generation for seeking a sign, And he said in that text, no sign would be given but the sign of Jonah. It's a tricky passage, but one of the big points is that the people of Nineveh uh, repented when Jonah came and just preached to them in kind of a half-hearted way, didn't do any major signs. Jesus is greater than Jonah, but people are demanding signs from him before they will listen to him. But here we see the reason that the Pharisees are looking for the kingdom in all the wrong places is because they're looking for it in places. Jesus says it's not the kind of thing that you point to and say, here it is, or it's over there. It's in the midst of you. They miss the kingdom because the kingdom of God is in their midst already, and they just don't want to see it. They don't want it to be about Jesus. Now, Sometimes verse 21 there, where it says the kingdom is in your midst, Uh, Sometimes that's translated and interpreted to mean the kingdom is within you, it's on the inside, uh, maybe connected to the indwelling of the people of God by the Holy Spirit. That's probably not what Jesus means because he's talking to Pharisees. It's unlikely he would tell them that the kingdom of God has has entered into them. Plus, in the New Testament, the way it speaks, uh, Jesus speaks, and the the, um, apostles write, the kingdom doesn't enter into people, people enter into the kingdom. So the point is that the kingdom is already present in the midst of the Pharisees because Jesus is present in their midst, and Jesus is the king. As he goes about his earthly ministry, he heals the sick, he drives out demons, he forgives sins, he proclaims the kingdom. He is asserting that redemptive rule of God on earth in his ministry. As we've already seen in Luke, Pharisees miss the kingdom because they are looking for big cosmic apocalyptic signs that God is about to come, and really what they're looking for him to do is to give righteous people, as they are in their own eyes, to give righteous people what they deserve. They were unable to see that God was already in their midst, giving sinners grace that they need. It's like when you're looking for something and you have an idea of what it looks like, but that's not really what it looks like. You're not going to be able to find it. You can talk to my wife about my expertise in finding things. She might disagree with uh, the the expertise idea. Um, So that's the issue with the Pharisees. Moving to the disciples, uh, the Pharisees don't get it because they don't get Jesus, but what about Jesus' own followers? The disciples rightly understand Christ to be the one who will bring in the kingdom of God but they're still prone to wander in various ways, and so are we. Note that the, the, the term actually changes here when we get to Jesus speaking with the disciples. He's not using the word kingdom anymore. He's talking about the day or the days, days of the Son of Man. The word day, I think, pops up eight times here. Uh, in verse 22, you see it, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Um, nuts and bolts here but the phrase one of the days is also kind of debated it could mean just one of those days or it could mean more like day one uh, number one of the days of the son of man like the first day of of the days of the son of man Uh, either way what we're talking about here is jesus followers will long for him to come back will long for his return which is connected to the kingdom. The kingdom we've talked about before is kind of an already-not-yet kingdom. It's already here in in the reign and rule of Christ, but it's not yet here in all of its fullness. There are still things that we look forward to that are future, even though there are benefits that we enjoy now. And then along the lines of nuts and bolts as well, uh, Jesus uses the word desire there. It indicates intense longing. It's not just you'll kind of look forward to it. Uh, It's an intense longing. The word is sometimes used for sinful desires, such as coveting or even lust. It's an overwhelming longing, in this case, for something that is good. This is a good thing to desire. But we need to look out for deceivers in the context of our, our longing. It says, they will say to you, look there or look here, do not go out or follow them. When we sinners desire something strongly, even desire something good, we are by our nature susceptible to manipulation, are we not? Uh, Satan is masterful at twisting our good desires even to get us to run after things that are bad for us. So Jesus gives his disciples this warning, which certainly applies to us today. Christ's followers need to know that when that day comes, you can't miss it. If somebody says to you, look here or look there, we might be tempted to drop everything and look because that's what we're really longing for to come. But we ought to know already that it's just kind of one big eschatological made-you-look prank. We know there's nothing there because Jesus has told us, verse 24, as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, So will the Son of Man be in his day. The second coming of Christ will be clear for all to see, horizon to horizon. Now, don't get lost in the, would this be geology or astronomy here? Um, Yes, the earth is round, and the horizons we see don't cover that much of the planet's surface. We probably can't even see from one end of Coles County to the other, right? But Jesus is using a a metaphor, technically a simile, because it uses like or as, um, as the lightning, Let me put it this way. Imagine that you are, say, in your backyard after dark, hanging out with some friends and family, enjoying the evening. Suddenly there's a bolt of lightning that is big enough to just light up the entire sky from horizon to horizon as far as the eye can see. Now imagine someone says, Hey guys, you'll never guess what I just saw. A bolt of lightning big enough to light up the sky from one side to the other. They know. They saw it. They heard it. They are all inside the house, in an interior room or closet, away from windows, skylights, or glass doors. On the other hand, if you're outside enjoying a peaceful evening and someone says that same thing, I saw a bolt of lightning that lit up the sky from horizon to horizon and you saw nothing of the sort, just crickets chirping and uh, birds singing or whatever, uh, you probably will think that at least one person there needs to go in for some tests, and it's, it's probably not you. So there's a sense in which this is like the car ride question. Are we there yet? Well, has the trumpet of God sounded? Have the dead in Christ been raised incorruptible? Have we been caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air? No? No, then we're probably not there yet. You will hear wars and rumors of wars. You'll see self-proclaimed prophecy experts marketing their books and posting their videos, and you might wonder if it's legit. If you have to ask, though, is this legit, then no, it's almost certainly not. The coming of the Son of Man cannot be mistaken for anything else. If you have to go somewhere or buy a book or watch a YouTube video to see it, there's nothing to see. The Son of Man isn't going to come on YouTube. Obvious things to say, but helps to say it. Jesus adds a second point, though, that we need in order to help us endure waiting. And that is in verse 25 suffering comes before fulfillment. Jesus says, But first, in other words, before his return, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Jesus is, of course, teaching the disciples about his own rejection by the Jews, his crucifixion under Pontius Pilate. That's the surprising way that the kingdom comes, with a crown of thorns. It's the only way the kingdom could come, because God's people, all people, have rejected God's rule, and we are unworthy in and of ourselves to enter into his kingdom, his place, or his blessing So God's Son left his rightful place of glory and blessing, took on human nature, endured the separation and curse that we deserve, so that through him we can be counted righteous, we can stand before God, we may share in an inheritance of blessing beyond imagination, so that the kingdom of God, if it's God's saving rule, it begins with God's saving of his people through the atoning work of Christ. It's why there can be a gospel of the kingdom. Otherwise, the kingdom is not good news because we're not fit to enter it. But in Christ, we are made fit to enter it. That is the good news of the kingdom. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, as Paul writes. Now, at this point in Luke 17, the disciples didn't really know or understand this yet. They didn't understand it until after it happened, really. But Luke's readers did, because Luke obviously wrote this book to to people who already knew the, the, the story. And Luke includes it because Jesus, his point, also tells us something about the Christian life, that suffering precedes fulfillment for us even as well. Paul says in Romans 8, we suffer with Christ in order that we may also be glorified with Christ at his second coming. So our suffering, it doesn't atone for our sins or anyone else's, but it is part and parcel of living in union with Christ while at the same time living in the same world that crucified Christ. That's why in First Peter, the apostle warns the church, don't be surprised by what he calls the fiery trial that comes upon them. Which, by the way, in the context of 1 Peter, was mostly social pressure. 1 Peter, the whole letter, really, is a call to stay the course in the face of hardship. Don't panic. Don't say, you know, well, this isn't supposed to happen. I must be doing something wrong. Don't second-guess yourself. Don't slam on your brakes or try try to swerve away from from the course, or you're, you're likely to end up in the ditch. The point is to keep your eye on Christ and keep sailing on straight ahead toward him. Keep your eye on the prize. So we've seen two threats to your patience, you know, false claims that the day has, has already come, and then panic in the face of hardship. Here's the third we see starting in verse 26. It's what the world does, getting so caught up in the cares and concerns of this world that we aren't even looking for the return of Christ. So the day of the Son of Man, day of judgment, is compared to two famous Old Testament passages of judgment, the flood and the destruction of of Sodom and Gomorrah. In both cases, the general population was preoccupied with day-to-day life, and only those who received and followed God's warning were able to escape the coming judgment. Now the point is not that we should withdraw from earthly life or stop doing all those things that they were doing. The point is, don't be eating or drinking or marrying or buying or selling or planting or building. can't very well get through life without eating, right? Uh, Also, if we were to skip ahead in verses 34 and 35, you see people doing the same things, same daily activities, two people... In one bed, presumably, one of them was given in marriage to the other, uh, two women grinding together, grinding uh, grain into flour together. So they're involved in much the same activities on a day-to-day basis, but they don't end up in the same place when Jesus comes. So the point isn't withdraw from the world, but to recognize that while earthly things do matter, we can show that from the rest of Scripture, earthly things aren't ultimate. Colossians 3.23 tells us to do our work heartily as to the Lord. Your daily life matters because you are living for, living in light of the return of Christ, recognizing that we are called to be faithful in whatever earthly stewardships God has given us because the true owner of all those things is on his way back. Just a few weeks ago, we heard the words, Make friends for yourself. For yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Just a chapter earlier. Difficult passage, uh, but same basic point. Uh, We we live in this world with our eye on the next. Don't bury the master's money then. Don't be afraid to enjoy the gifts and blessings he sends, but also don't live as if those things are all that there is, as if they're only yours, as if the gift has your heart rather than the giver. That's the point also, I believe, when we get to the next couple of verses. Jesus says, On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away, and likewise, let the one who is on in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. So, I take this uh, to mean that thinking about the end times shouldn't provoke in us the reaction that, you know, you just think Jesus could come back at any moment, I better start prepping, right? I better make my tribulation bunker uh, in the basement or something, make sure I have plenty of canned goods or army surplus rations. It's not a lesson on survivalism in case of tribulation. It reminds me of uh, uh, my friend from childhood, his crazy uncle who stockpiled weaponry and surplus rations, convinced that the government uh, was going to come after specifically him. And to be fair, in his case, they probably should have. But uh, (laughs) verse 31, I don't know whatever happened to him. Uh, Anyway, maybe they got him, I don't know. But verse 31, it's not a survival strategy. It's, It's not indicating whether you have time to go and grab your survival kit or important papers or wedding photos or whatever, I would, I would read the statement as a mini parable with the same point as that note in the next verse about Lot's wife. It, it's don't turn back. What's your first instinct when trouble comes? Is it turn to God and look for, for God's provision or is it protect my stuff, dig in and protect my stuff? Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. That's really the key. Are we living for the, the acquisition and uh, keeping of stuff, or are we living to, to really lay down our lives for the sake of God, for the sake of the kingdom of God? That's the question before us. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. So when push comes to shove, keep the world behind you and the cross before you, no turning back. Well, we've mentioned these verses already, kind of well-known and and scary verses. Uh, Two will be in one bed, one will be taken, and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding together, again, milling flour, essentially. One will be taken and the other left you know the, the left behind franchise popularized sort of one reading of this section here that this is about uh, rapture in terms of a secret return of Christ to sort of beam up the church like Scotty from Star Trek I don't mean to be uh, derogatory there but that's that's essentially the the image that you that you get uh, the Christians all disappear in an instant the church is taken out of the world before the great Tribulation. I should tell you there's some debate about all of this. There, I know there are different views of what the end times will, will look like uh, when Christ does return, order of events kind of thing. But um, when looking at this specific couple of verses here, there's some debate about whether it's a good thing even to be the one who is taken. If you think about Israel's judgment and the exile to Babylon for example you probably wanted to be left behind in the land rather than taken away into exile it's kind of hard to, to resolve since uh, being taken doesn't sound great nobody wants to be taken nobody wants to be left behind either if you just think of those words on their own doesn't doesn't sound great have some thoughts but I don't know that it affects the main point all that much whether you want to be taken or left behind the point is that God's people and God's enemies are mixed together in this life, wheat and tares together sown, involved in the same kinds of daily activities, but we do those things for different purposes, with different goals, different attitudes, certainly have different destinies. So there's more than meets the eye. Your final destination is not set by merely what you're up to in your day-to-day life, but by whether you are trusting in and waiting for Christ. Not what you're doing while you wait, but what you're waiting for. That's the root uh, issue here. Now, it is legitimately difficult for small children to sit still in a car for more than 30 seconds or so. Uh, They are hardwired to want to move and play and learn and experience things. That's how God made the the little blessings. But still, our longing for the return of Christ is on a greater level. When the saints cry out, How long? it is not just a whiny sort of, Are we there yet? It's an expression of a good and godly, holy longing that He has given us by His Spirit, crawling, crying out within us, groanings too deep for words. But if we get worked up over predictions from self-appointed prophecy experts, or if we panic in the face of hardship, it does make about as much sense as if my kids actually listened to me on I-70 when I tell them this is where Grandpa and, Liv- and Grandma live now, if they actually did hop out of the car while well, we're barreling down the highway. The results could be just about as catastrophic on a spiritual level if the focus of your faith is shifted from the finished work of Christ to something else. That's catastrophic, and we shouldn't be surprised that those who want to shift your focus from Christ's promises to their own predictions may have an agenda that is counter to Christ's promises, may be trying to sell you on a different gospel. Beware. On the other hand, if we become so content with the things of this earth that we cease longing for Christ's return altogether, that makes about as much sense as a kid who just wants to live in the car forever be fair, on the bottom of our car, there does seem to be a lifetime supply of food built up. (laughs) But you'd probably find that those six-month-old chicken nuggets uh, do not satisfy. They may do the opposite of satisfying. If anybody wants to help clean our car. Now, the final exchange, though, does end on a serious note in verse 37. And, so should we. They said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Commentators disagree on what on earth the disciples are trying to ask here. I'm sure, not sure that anyone's really cracked the code. They seem to be just confused and, and struggling to accept what Jesus is telling them, and we can probably all identify with that, Right? Jesus' closing response in a way sums up what he's been saying all along and adds a note of finality to it. If you see a flock of vultures gathered around something you don't have to wonder what it is. Again, there's, when it happens, you know. You know that there's a dead body there. The coming of the Son of Man is that obvious, but the coming of the Son of Man is also that final. As one commentator Put it An interesting way to put it, he says, don't worry about when and where the Son of Man will come because by then it will be too late. It doesn't do you any good to worry about it. At that point, there's no time to change your mind. The Son has come. So there is no possibility, in other words, of recognizing that Jesus has arrived and then doing anything that will make any difference. Being ready for Christ's return is not a matter of predicting it or or prepping for it. To be ready for Christ's return, all you need to do is trust in him now. He's already said that he's coming. You already know that he's coming. Could be a hundred years from now. It could be before I finish. What little is left in this sermon? So if you have not trusted in Christ or you're not sure, my charge to you this morning is don't assume that you have all the time in the world. If you want to talk about what that means, uh, feel free to approach me or any of our elders after the service. We would love to help you think through those things. But if you do trust in him now, the message is the same as it was essentially for the disciples, and that is to stay the course. Don't get wrapped up in things of this life. Don't get distracted by... The fear of hardship or uh, what fear-mongering you see from false prophets or what you see going on in the world, Jesus himself promised, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. In other words, the world in various ways is trying to get you to do anything but that which you really need to do in this life, and that is to rest in his promises, rest in the promises of God and give your life to preaching that message of rest to those who need to hear it as well. Rest in Christ. We're almost there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that though we rebelled against your rule, you sent your Son, our King, to be crucified for us In our place, taking that penalty that we deserve. We who are by nature traitors, have committed treason, tried to set ourselves up as gods. We who are frail and dependent creatures of dust in our pride and in our arrogance. And yet you loved us because you are love. For the sake of your goodness, you gave us your Son and delivered us from the domain of darkness where we by rights belonged and gave us the right to become children of God through the work of Christ. We do not deserve these things. We cannot imagine how or, or why or what uh, grace you dwells within you, that you would give us such a glorious gift, so undeserved, yet so freely given. We thank you for your mercy and for your grace, and we ask for your continued grace and mercy as we live out the remainder of our time here, whether it is long or short. We confess our continued dependence on you, to continue trusting in you, keeping our hearts set on your promises. We confess that still our hearts are easily drawn away by siren songs in every direction. We are susceptible to false teaching. We are susceptible to panic in the face of of suffering, we are susceptible to simply giving ourselves over to cares and concerns of this world, living for its joys or living in fear of its difficulties. Would you give us that perspective that the things that we see around us are not all there is, that the kingdom is not something that we look at, but the kingdom is Present, wherever Christ reigns, help us to look even now for the ways that the kingdom is preached and proclaimed, and and in an already not yet sort of way, the kingdom is made manifest here and now. And help us to continue to keep our eyes set on the future, the coming of Christ. When everything is fulfilled, every tear is wiped away, we are made new. When we see our Savior face to face and worship our God and King, we ask these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.